Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores our human condition. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We talk with researchers and other interesting people to unlock the mysteries of our behavior by using a behavioral science lens. Tim, we've had a few, a few really great guests on the show recently, and they were all talking about communication. Mm. So let's like just, just a couple of them, right? Todd Rogers in episode 382 on writing for busy readers. And then we had Huggy Rao in episode 387 who talked about jargon monoxide. I love that. That was fantastic. Okay. How about Jonah Berger? Okay. He, he was uh, episode 362, talked about magic words. And of course, Matt Abrahams on unlocking the power of effective communication in episode 381. Just okay. so, so that's like, that's a bunch. Yeah. So we've had uh, a number of really good episodes, actually great episodes, great conversations talking about communication. But today, Tim, today our listeners need to check this out because we're going to talk with Ben Goodman about another way of looking at communication. Yeah. Ben is a marketing and communications expert. He's also the author of Simply Put, Why Clear Messages Win and How to Design Them. He's first and foremost a practitioner of behavioral science as a marketing executive, but he's also a professor on a mission to get leaders to simplify their messages. And Ben digs into some common and not so common advice on communicating more effectively. Of course, we talked about marketing applications like slogans, ad copy, brand value propositions, and how challenging it is for large, big organizations to communicate when they lose sight of the benefits to their customers. Sort of how you can forget about the, uh, talking about the quarter inch hole and focus entirely on the quarter inch drill, Tim. Yeah. And you know, that quarter inch drill that you always talk about. You no, know? but I want the quarter inch hole. <laughs> but yeah, this is, the, and this is a great part of the conversation. Ben also helped us refocus the idea that, you know, we crave simplicity in communication and that we need to focus on the senders as well as the receivers of the messages. So we talked about, uh, with him about how receivers are often challenged with fluency, mm. tip word right there, pro word, fluency, and how the senders are challenged by their environments, which is a cool part of the conversation. I think everybody will enjoy that. Yeah, and Ben also brought up how focus, salience, and minimalism all come into play in the communication pieces that we create. And he introduced us to a great image, the enlightened idiot. Ah. I couldn't help but think that there was a big picture of me in his head when he was talking about the enlightened idiot. But as you will see, listeners, you'll have to listen to hear how important this person, and it's not me, is into <laughs> the messaging process. It could apply to us, but we only fit one of the two words. And <laughs> And, and it's not enlightened. <laughs> How about that? That's okay. good. Good point. There yeah. you go. Ben also talked about the 10 hundred most used words. And that, I got to say, that is a fun way of thinking about the most commonly used words in the English language. So I, I think that folks are going to enjoy that conversation as well. Yeah. And lastly, we wanted to thank our friend Michael Schein for introducing us to Ben. We're grateful to him and many other guests who think so highly of behavioral grooves uh, that they refer their buddies to us. They they just go, hey, you want to talk to a couple idiots? Here you go. You can talk to Tim and Kurt. <laughs> Not so, enlightened uh, idiots. No, 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 just the idiot part. So there we go. Right. So 
So thank you for that. And uh, if you, if, if anybody else wants to have their friends talk to some idiots, send them our way. Absolutely. And with that, Groovers, we hope that you'll sit back with a generous pour of clear messages and enjoy our conversation with Ben Gutman. Ben Gutman, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It is fantastic to get to, to speak with you. And a big shout out to Michael Shine for uh, for referring you. We're uh, very grateful to Michael always. And we have to find out immediately, quickly, coffee or tea. So I'm glad you asked me that because I was listening to another one of your episodes and I was hoping that I would get the coffee or tea one uh, because I don't drink coffee. I love the smell of coffee. Uh, I love the vibe of a coffee oh. shop. I am exclusively a tea person though. Uh, and I, you and I yeah. are in the same boat. This is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. I'm going to be left out of this conversation, even, aren't I? Because you two have just connected, and <laughs> I'm going to be the third wheel. It, you're always <laughs> the third wheel, Kurt. No, but Ben, you, you you said the magic words like you love the smell of coffee. I love the smell of coffee. Mm-hmm. The taste just feels like it's a cross between manure and mule piss. I don't know. <laughs> it's just, Every time I accidentally take a sip of like my wife's coffee cup, I'm always like, you know, it's, it's not a great reaction. I'm also, I appreciate a very good tea. You know, I have, um, I live in, in Queens and right over the border in Brooklyn, there's a tea shop called Balak and they're not paying, they're not paying me for this, but it is some of the best loose tea you're ever going to get. Wow. Uh, and so I go there, I get the fancy teas, but also like I'm sitting upstate right now and I just have my like, you know, 10 cent, like twining tea. I, I, <laughs> I can go the full, the full range for it. I used to drink tea a lot, almost exclusively, and I've switched more to coffee um, over the past few years. But loose tea has always been something that scares me. It's always like, I, I'm going to get this wrong. And I don't, you know, so <laughs> kudos to you on the loose tea. There you the go. secret is you just got to get a good teapot that has like a strainer and that makes your life a lot easier. Yeah. 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 A little good. bit more. I always though. have that little thing and you try to put it in and then I'm always like, it's going to open up. And yeah, yeah. no, that's uh, more trouble than it's worth. all right right. as we mentioned in the pre-show that the speed round isn't always speedy this is this is that so i'm gonna go and i'm gonna move us on to the second question i could spell the just speed the whole time about tea if you want by the way (laughs) great book i read uh, about you know we could probably enjoy that i don't know how much our listeners would enjoy that (laughs) so uh we might have to rechange you know behavioral teas and then we then we could could do that all right would you prefer to learn a new instrument or a new language? Oh, I'm going to go with language. Uh, I have mm-hmm. no musical talent whatsoever. I enjoy music. I enjoy going to live music. Uh, I can barely clap on a beat, uh, let alone play any sort of instrument. My brother got all the instru- like musical talent. I got oh. like the visual creative talent. He got the musical creative talent. So I will absolutely take the language. We meshed there and Tim's on the outside there. So, yeah. all right. I think we got, we got it. I'm, well, okay. I'm the same way. So, yeah. we're, we're, we're one for one, each of us here. All right. So true or false, Ben? Complexity is only rewarding when we're genuinely motivated. And most of the time, we aren't generally motivated to take on complex tasks. True, true. So you're, you're referencing, I believe, kind of one of the last pieces of the, of the book there, which uh, I talk about. So my book's called Simply Put, Why Clear Messages Win and How to Design Them. And it's all about how we, you know, we w- crave simple, it's hard for us. And so how do we bridge that gap? And it's kind of the five principles I've identified to get us there. And at the very end, I say, but this is where it's wrong. And I talk <laughs> about how, I talk about the instrumentality heuristic, right? Where sometimes if we want something, if, and the famous kind of Betty Crocker cake example is what I used in that. 
uh, where if you crack the egg and it took more work to do it, people are more likely to buy the cake mix than if it was just kind of the instant cake mix. The same thing applies if it's like your PhD thesis, right? And you worked really hard on it. It's more rewarding to do that than it is to kind of cakewalk, you know, no pun intended, to the finish line. So I look at complexity as something that can be can pull. It's like a rope, it can pull, but you can't push. And if, but most of the time we're communicating is in kind of that push where we have something to say and we want to get it out. Uh, and so when we're doing that, we have to try as hard as we can to get simple. And, and can I say, I loved the Betty Crocker example. I thought that you use that. Uh, it's a classic you know, example. It, get, it gets used all the time. But I don't think that it gets explained nearly as well as you covered it, because it really is about we, the users, the, the customers, were motivated to have a more complex task. They were absolutely motivated to be cooking and not just cheating. And uh, so I, I thought that the way that you serve that up, no pun intended, was just perfect, actually. So <laughs> that's great. Sorry. Thank you. Just came out. Okay, Kurt. All right. Last speed round question. We're not at a record, but we're in the top 10 of, of length of speed round <laughs> questions, or at least the tangents off of speed round questions, I'm sure here. So on a scale of one to 10, how ironic is it to write a 208 page book about the need for simplicity in writing? Oh boy. I, I wrote that in the uh, preface of the book on the first page. The first line. First line. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I realized as I was writing the rest of the book that I was like, I need to cut this off at the past because every time I told somebody I'm writing a book on how to say things simply, they're like, what is it going to be? One page? And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, like kind of, it, it, it could be. And so what I say, what I say there and what I say whenever I talk about it is if that's enough for you, if you just need somebody to remind you to say, say it simply, to write it simply, to communicate clear, more, clear, mm -hmm. more clearly, then great. Don't read the rest of the book. You don't need it. Uh, but <laughs> the, the, 200, uh, the other 207 pages is about the why, is about why it is that we crave it and, and that we seek it out and why is it so effective, um, as well as the how, which is, okay, well, we have this, this kind of gap between when we send and when we receive, what our kind of mindsets are. And how do we how do we bridge that? And and surprisingly deep once you get into it. Simple doesn't mean easy. It's trying to get to a state of ease, but it doesn't mean that the work to get there is easy. Well, and I would recommend for any of our readers, don't stop at page one. Read the other two hundred and seven <laughs> pages because it is fantastic. It is, I mean, there's nuggets everywhere. The Betty Crocker way again, all of those. And as you said, Ben, it's not simplicity is the is the goal. But it isn't simple to get to simple, mm -hmm. I think, is a, a one way of saying oh, yeah. that there. <laughs> okay, so we are talking about your new book, Simply Put, and we should start with an understanding of why the world needs a book on simpler communication. I mean, aren't we already there? Like, we've got social media driving us into shorter messages, and, you know, it, it, aren't we already there with, you know, the, a whole bunch of needs to communicate simply? I think actually some of those things push us in the other direction, which is it causes more of a need for us to be simple because and the average American consumes 13 hours of media a day. I mean, that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of messages, a lot of you know Facebook and Instagram and Twitter posts. It's a lot of YouTube videos, a lot of commercials, a lot of billboards. And in that environment, we have to kind of do triage in our own brains. So what are we paying attention to? What are we, what are we caring about? Uh, and so it actually, if I would, I would say that argument is in favor of having more simplicity or, or this being more important. Yeah, I would venture to say there might even be a trend 
Uh, mm -hmm. We've recently talked to Todd Rogers about uh, his book uh, recently on writing for busy readers, Matt Abrahams on verbal communication skills, Lydie Klotz, you, who you referenced, a, a buddy of ours, about reducing first and adding later. Do you think that there's a trend? Do you feel like there is an increased focus on the need for simplicity? I think so. I think those those titles you referenced, and there's been a couple other ones even in the last year or so, which have been even more narrow on the writing or the speaking or the presenting side. I think those those are certainly indicative of a trend. And as well as you look at things like how how much we've installed ad blockers in the past, you know, mm. couple couple years, decade or yeah. so. How much the the downloads for meditation apps have increased. Uh, there's just we're in this this constantly accelerating media cycle or technology cycle too, and we are beginning to to say we went off the ride a little bit. And so this isn't a book about like austere minimalism or anything. It's inspired <laughs> in some ways by that, and there's and they rhyme, but it's not quite the same thing. But it, they're they're still they're both two ends of the same uh, of the same uh, phenomenon, which is it's busy, it's loud, we're stressed, and in that environment. We have to we have to recognize that's the playing field whenever we're doing anything, if it's marketing, if it's leading, if it's building a business, whatever. Yeah, it, it's interesting. One of the examples you bring in in the book is John F. Kennedy's speech, the, the famous one. And what I was interesting is that you you talk about like there's a lot more to that speech than the part that we remember. And mm -hmm. so it, it, it's not this idea of austerity that you're going to get up there and just give a two-minute speech or a 30-second speech, but it's making sure that there are components within there and in that communication that are all of that. But with that, thinking about who this book would be most beneficial for, did you write it for a certain audience? Is the Who's the ideal reader for this book? So it's funny you mentioned that because I, I reference as one of the tools in the book is that you should have a, a single person that you're writing for or a single person that you're, you're speaking to. And for me, I mean, I tried to write for myself, to be honest. Like, it, who would? I, I ran a marketing agency for ten years. I teach marketing at the Zicklin School of Business uh, here in New York, and I also I'm on a number of nonprofits, and I'm a consumer. I'm a husband. I'm you know I'm a friend, and you do all these different things. You all these different hats you wear, and I saw through all of those experiences that we all have the same problems. Was that you know, we have things we won't be able to hear and to understand and to do, and it's really hard for us sometimes to get there. And so there's this gulf that we all have between like the state we want of the world and the things we want people to hear and understand uh, and what we have internally and, and what we're able to, how we're able to connect the two. So that being said, yeah, that's who I was, you know, individually looking for as myself in the past. But in terms of what type of audience would benefit from this, I argue that, you know, my, my background's marketing. I argue that we're all marketers today, right? Mm -hmm. If you are, if you are running a business or if you're in marketing function, great. But if you're an advocate, if you're a parent, if you're an educator, all of these people, they're marketers. They're, they have a thing they want to get out there. They have minds they want to change. And this is a, a toolkit in many ways to kind of translate some of the stuff that marketers do on a daily basis to be a more applicable to kind of everybody. Yeah, I think that that, that shows up when you even uh, sort of frame it as a, it's a playbook. I love that, a toolkit. And that, as a guy who's grown up in marketing myself, that feels very familiar for someone who is in marketing who's looking to apply 
these ideas and we're going to, there's so many uh, things that ideas that we can go to, but maybe could you spend just a minute on sort of the, over, give us a quick overview of these, these five major principles. Cause these are the, the five things that, that get us to understand sort of why and, and how, right. So I'll, I'll get to that. I'll back up a little bit to kind of what they're addressing too, for a second. Perfect. The, so I distill all these different groups down. I've talked about parents and teachers and advocates, everybody who's is, has a message they want to get out, they're a sender. Everybody that is on the receiving end of it, I call them a receiver. I strip away all the stuff where somebody can go, what about me? No, it's just senders and receivers. <laughs> keep it keep it simple appropriately. When we are receivers and we're you know consumers of the world, we value something known as fluency. And fluency is a word that we know a lot from, we can be fluent in English or Spanish or Mandarin, fluent in cooking or chess. But ultimately what it means is that where things are fluent, things are easy. It's flowing. That's, that's the origin of the word. To a cognitive scientist, when you ask them about fluency, they say, well, it describes how easy it is to take something from out in the world, stick it in your head and make sense of it. That's, that's the kind of layman's way of looking at it. If something is easier to read, to see, to process, well, you're more likely to, to buy it, more likely to like it, more likely to trust it, all the good things that you want. And so that's what we're aiming for whenever we're trying to communicate. On the other side, there is when we're senders, well, you mentioned Lighty Class before and, 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 sub, and subtract, and I, I reference his, some of his studies in the book about, well, we have this additive bias, right? It's internal. Externally, we're faced with all these pressures from, you know, from our boss, from the systems around us that it, you know, we benefit, we get the award for more, but we don't necessarily get it for less. So there's the gulf, right? We want things to be fluent, but when we're creating things, when we're sending things, we have a really hard time getting there. And so I looked at that gap and I put my design hat on because that's my, my functional background is in design. And I said, well, how can we address that? How can we consciously arrange things to make it so those two sides are going to be closer? And I've identified five principles as part of that. It's not a step-by-step -step plan. It's not a checklist. It's not a rubric. It's just five design principles to, to activate on. So the first one is beneficial. What does it matter to the receiver? What's in it for them? Second one is focus. Are you trying to say one thing or multiple things at once? Third one is salient. Does your message stand out from the noise? Does it rise to your attention? Does it stick out? Does it stand up? Fourth is empathetic. Are you speaking in a language that the audience understands? Are you meeting them where they are, both in terms of the language itself, but also motivations and emotions uh, and, and all, of, all of that? And then lastly, it's minimal. Have you cut out everything you don't need and left only what is important. And if you, the more you can activate on these, the better you're going to to be able to bridge that gap that I talked about, and the more effective your communication is going to be. Yeah, it's, I love all five of those. I'm going to go back actually at the beginning of the book because you also talk about two secrets that that you you, you bring in, and not to give these secrets away, but I'm going to give them away. Um, but <laughs> the, the first one, which is the one that I I just absolutely love, is that no, you know, if you're the the sender, right? Um, and you're, you know, the receivers typically don't care, right? I think you say nobody cares and, and you're talking about marketing, uh, but nobody cares about what your product you're selling. They don't wake up that morning going, Hey, I want to hear about this brand new product. And so that I think is a really interesting piece. And, you know, as you think about that with these elements, I think you're really trying to there, I'll leave the second secret secret so that people re readers have to go and, and figure it out. Um, but 
but I think that is a really interesting piece when you talk about this, because what you're really answering with these five kind of principles is kind of answering to that question in my, in my mind. And I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm way off base with that. Oh yeah. I, I think that is one of the things that a lot of marketers especially have a really hard time with because our entire like identity oftentimes is bound up in the idea that people really care about what I have to say and this like campaign I have and this, I'm look at this this ad for this new shampoo I made it's really great nobody cares nobody everybody we we woke up today with a lot of things that we cared about we cared about our family and our friends and our sports teams and our politics and our, our neighborhood yeah. and the leaky roof and the vacation coming up all those things I cared about I didn't have on my to-do list though to to click a banner ad or open a spam email or or to watch your TikTok sponsor content. I just that's not as an individual what we want to do. And and that ladders up to like people don't care. Like you have to connect it to what their motivations are for anybody to actually care about the things that you're saying. Yeah. Which goes to that em- empathetic, right? That that piece of within there. So if you had to, you know, this is one of the things, if you had to give our listeners you had two minutes with them. And of these five principles, which one would you pick to, to have them really focus in on uh, if they wanted to really improve the way that they were communicating? So I, I lied a little bit before saying there's not like a step-by-step plan. <laughs> Mostly it's not. I did put beneficial first because I think that is the most important one. And that's where we kind of have to start. And I also did put minimal at the end because it's about knowing everything else first before you can know what Ah, you need and what you don't need. So there's a little bit of of reasoning to that for sure. But I would start with beneficial, which is what does it matter to the receiver? It kind of connects to what we were just talking about. What's in it for them? We have a really kind of nasty habit as as anybody who who wants to write or or speak or, or design an ad to say, well, you know what? This drill that I have, this drill is, has a silicone grip and an eight hour battery life and this many horsepower and this, because we, these are all features. We open our eyes and we open our ears, we open our nose, open our enemy. And, and we, with our five senses, identify these things in the world. And that's how a lot of us communicate when we are talking about anything. We say, well, this is the sights, the sounds, the smells, the, the, the touch, but that's not why we buy anything. And that's not why we vote for anybody. And that's not why we donate to anybody. We do those things because of what they get us. We, we don't care about the thing. We care about what the thing does. Uh, there's a sentence that I have uh, in that chapter, which I tell my students every semester. And I say, if you remember nothing else from this entire class, course, degree, and you remember this, you're going to be ahead of most people in marketing. And it's from uh, a 20th century Harvard professor named Theodore Levitt. He said, People don't want a quarter inch drill. They want a quarter inch hole. Yeah. They don't want a quarter inch drill. They want a quarter inch hole. They don't want the thing. They want what the thing does for them. If we can internalize that, we're going to be so far ahead of everybody else. Well, in in that, in that, that benefit section, you, you gave a great example. Uh, And and by the way, you you do this with each of the five. I I just want to say uh, again, as a, a marketing oriented guy, I love the very specific examples that you've given the way that you lay them out sort of in this very side by side. This is something to do. This is something not to do. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you brought up the, the classic Apple example when they were talking about benefits and, and they claimed that, you know, that very first listening device that was going to be uh, totally different from every kind of you know music listening device uh, up to that point, they said, we'll put a thousand songs in your pocket. 
Whereas Microsoft said, it's music the way it wants to be. And, <laughs> and just <laughs> like just saying those things out loud makes me kind of laugh, actually. Well, and, and, and I love that the, the, the example there, too, because when we think of, again, that minimalist part, right, they're both they're not that many words apart. They're just a couple words right, apart. So it's right. not about the length of the message. It is a it's it's about what the message is stating. So oh yeah, you know it's fine because that Microsoft one, it's got a lot of pretty words. It looks really pretty on a on a brochure yeah. on the header of a website, and that's a crime that I see a lot of folks uh, commit on, in their presentations and yeah. their taglines on their website. They're they're really good about putting. Marketers are really good about putting pretty words together and we can make it look like that's a beautiful tagline. And I reference this later when I talk about um, in the minimal chapter about politics and talk about some of these like 2016 campaign slogans. And there yeah. was the one guy who won who you know, we'll talk about him later. But there's a bunch of guys that lost and like their campaign slogan, Marco Rubio was a new American century, leadership for a new American century. And Hillary Clinton was love Trump's hate or I'm with her. Very pretty words, very beautiful on a, on a bumper sticker. But it's a bumper sticker you're going to forget immediately because no, it don't mean anything. And uh, when you talk about minimal, about the number of words, that's also an important distinction uh, that I think is is a, a good mindset shift for anybody. It's not about the least amount of characters, words, sentences, paragraphs, pages, whatever it is. It's about the least amount of friction. Uh, ah. This is the the user experience kind of hat going on. Is that you want yeah. the least amount of friction between where they are and where you want them to go. Because each bit of friction is another excuse for somebody to pull off and say, I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to pay attention to something else. I don't care anymore. And sometimes that does mean you want to have more words. You want to have more paragraphs, more slides, because it can be easier often to break up something complex into smaller chunks than it is to try to condense it all down and cram it into one yeah. one really you know jargon-heavy sentence. Well, and... Uh... I just when I think about it, not just the this this condensing idea, but uh, in the examples overall, it struck me that there are really big corporations and really big organizations that are well funded that have very bright people working for them that have made really ineffective been very ineffective in their development of messaging, with the exception of the old dentist versus new dentist. Maybe not so deeply well funded, but you know, it comes to flossing. But but I, I was just kind of scratching my head. Like Microsoft and Apple, in many ways, weren't all that different. The you know a Republican uh, campaign committee versus a Democratic campaign committee. Uh, lots of bright people on you know on both sides, both both organizations, but some are just incredibly more gifted when it comes to coming up with with something that really reduces the friction and delivers benefits. Oh yeah. I mean it it two things that came to mind. Number one is I'll I'll kind of I guess finish the anecdote there on the uh, the dentist piece. So I, I talk about this <laughs> okay. when I, I talk about empathy and there's you have to meet people where they are. And I always had bad luck with my teeth and I was at the dentist one day and, and you know he's digging in there causing all sorts of pain. And he says, well you only have to floss the teeth you want to keep. <laughs> man you got me like that's it that's all i needed to hear and i have lost every single day since i've <laughs> so, so there you go. that that's right, right. Uh, as opposed well, to a dentist that goes that like back here. left one I, I don't really care about you can take that out we don't floss that C one compared yet. to co contrast that with the bad message and what's that well, the bad message would be something like you know you floss every day uh, below the gum line to prevent plaque buildup like yeah that's true but that's that's not that's not what I need to hear. And you don't know your audience at that point. Uh, yeah. If you 
but if you tell me I only floss, only have to floss the teeth I want to keep, it's like, well, okay, damn it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do it now every day. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so Ben, when you think about those messages, you think about what Tim just said. This idea that you have you have huge organizations, well funded, bright people in them. Um, they, you know, the marketers within them, I understand this to a certain degree. Why is it so hard? What is what is the problem that to get down to making something beneficial, focused, salient, empathetic, and minimal? Why do we have such a hard time with it? I think some of the reason is when you look at these bigger organizations, older, more established, you know, juggernaut groups, as they get bigger and further away from the original mission and the original problem, they don't see the benefit as much. They see the features, but they don't see the benefits because wow. the features always exist, right? Well, I have a whole team that's working on this button for this toolbar and this one app. And, and they see that all the time. And they're like, this has to be in the, in the marketing brochures that we have this new button. But the benefits start to get lost a little bit because you start to get further and further away. I, I use Microsoft as a positive example when I talk, and I'm, I, I don't remember the exact line in there, but I talk about the first ad for Excel was really great, actually. It was really good about it telling you all about the things that you, know, you can do and solve with Microsoft Excel. When you compare that to the current marketing for Excel, it's like, we have this new like Office 365, <laughs> you know, like sync file sync, whatever cloud thing. And nobody cares. That doesn't help me. They, they lost the, the forest for the trees a little bit with that. Sometimes the size and the scale and the the experience kind of goes in the other direction. Yeah. It's interesting. I do a lot of work with organizations, large organizations on their incentive compensation and communicating um, incentive compensation plans. And what I find is that there's always, not always, I oftentimes have to push back on the experts. These are the people who are designing these plans. They, it's the statisticians behind this. They're, they want every little detail in there and different pieces. And I have to keep pushing back on them and saying, think about it. You're talking to salespeople and you know, they, they speak in a different language than you do. First off, just understand that. I mean, it's all English, but it's, it's definitely different language. Right. And, and so with that, you know, they want to keep adding in. And it was, it was when we talked with Lydie, this, it was just one of those light bulbs that went off in my head is like, no, we have to subtract. And uh, I mean, is that part of it as well? It's like, you talked about the, the designers who are focusing in on this button and they, they need to get that button included into whatever it is that, that message that's going out. Is that part of it? I think that's definitely part of it. Uh, I talk when I speak about empathy, uh, the, the tool that I use is calling it the enlightened idiot, right? Mm. We need to welcome the enlightened idiot into our process in terms, in, in order to achieve that state where we're actually communicating with, with our audience. And it sounds a little like me, the idiot. The idiot, when you, when you look at the origins of that word, it's the common man, right? And, yeah. and that's what we, we want to get to. We want to get to the outsider because when we are in those environments, we are so, we're speaking our own language, right? We're using our own jargon and acronyms. And we understand it because we're dealing with it every day, but we don't really understand that our audience doesn't get it. We're so far removed from them sometimes. And so you have to, at various stages of communicating or, or being or any sort of creative endeavor, bring in the audience. And this is not to say you want to you know, focus group something to death, but you got to test it at some point. I, 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 also, I always say this is one of the things 
that is the most no duh part of this entire uh, framework. But it's the thing that people hate doing so much, and so it's going to be the most ignored thing as, as part of it. People hate, 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 hate testing their stuff. They hate going out and asking people for feedback because it might be scary. You might get the feedback which says, no, I don't like this. This doesn't make any sense. Or it might be something that you know, you're just kind of awkward about. You don't like to do it. I, I once, you know, in some of the work I was doing, I once... I remember standing on the concourse at Grand Central, flagging down people to ask them about stuff. And and you know what? Like awkward as hell the first time I do it, but like by the fifth time, you're flagging someone down. You're a pro. You're doing it. It's great. <laughs> that that's an over. It's an everybody. If you ask people to just kind of pull pull stuff out of their hat as to how you can be better communicate, a lot of them go oh, test it. But when you ask them what they've done themselves, they're never going to say they did that. Yeah, isn't that the truth? I align with that 100%. I hate that. <laughs> yeah. I've done something, it's done. I don't want to go back and I'm, I'm horrible at editing first off. That's one of my big issues. But even worse is like then going and getting feedback from others on what we've done. Because exactly as you said, they might try to point me in a different direction and know my direction was right. I, you know, it's like, and I don't want to have to revisit it. And it's just so hard. And I know it's things I need to do. So, so what advice would you give me beyond just go and make sure you do it? What is there anything, anything to get me to make sure that I do that feedback? Oh boy! Well, I would say, I mean, first of all, it's very valuable, but all that's important. Yes, that's the benefits of it, right? You can it can change your mind. But really, to kind of negotiate on that is that you don't need to talk to that many people, right? Like ah. you can go out and you can hire a marketing agency, marketing research firm, to do a big focus group and do a big surveys and 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 get all this data. And sometimes that's really valuable. But what we really want to hear a lot of times is just a few people. If we get the feedback from, from a handful of folks, it's going to often be enough that we'll be able to quickly validate what it is that we're talking about. So if, if you can work, if it feels daunting to go out and, and survey a hundred people or a thousand people, God forbid, don't start with one, right? You know, start with okay. one person start with, and just ask them, Hey, does this, this is, Email makes sense to you? Is this website? How is it? You know, do you understand what I'm getting at here? Yeah. Uh, and then and then go from there. I love that. I, I appreciate the start with one. You talked about flossing your teeth. And my my little trick to get myself to floss is I I say I just have to floss one tooth, you know, every night. And and by the time I get one tooth done, well, I'm I'm already got the floss done. I got everything. I might as well just floss two. And by the end, it's like I get all my teeth flossed. So I, I love <laughs> that because I can, all right, I don't have to get a hundred. You just got to get one. And by getting one, I'll probably get two, three and go from there. So, so are you, are you fl that. only flossing the ones that you want to keep? Kurt? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that back right one, I'm still like, it, it hasn't gone. I don't know why <laughs> I haven't flossed that for years. It's well, still there. Well, Ben Beck, I, I think if I'm not misremembering in the section on empathy, you brought up something about the 10 hundred most used words. And I love that. And, and it was a, it's a, it was new to me. Uh, I, I'm unfamiliar with the 10 hundred most used words and, and why they matter. Could you uh, share a little bit about the 10 hundred words and uh, why they're important? So 10 hundred is 1000, right? Right. The thing is about English and about every other language, really, is that it follows what's something called known as Zipf's law, which we don't need to go into the detail of it. But basically, what it says is it's really condensed. The top few words are used all the time. And then it's a really long tail for all the stuff that we use kind of way down the line. And if you look, the top 100 words, I think, account for 
50% of English as it's used. The top 1,000 words account for about 75% of English as it's used. And so if we start there as just our baseline, for, and it's not saying we have to just use those, but if we use that as our initial palette for when we're communicating, it will put us in a better footing to then kind of grow from there instead of starting with kind of the jargon that we only understand. Start with that common denominator that mm-hmm. everybody understands and then go from there as you need to. You can do a lot with a thousand words. It's, I mean, it's awkward, right? Like the word a thousand isn't one of the thousand most common words, right? Like it, it's, so it's the 10 hundred most common words. Uh, there's an author uh, and a web comic named Randall Monroe who wrote a whole book about this uh, or using this method uh, called Thing Explainer. And he goes into explaining how like a nuclear bomb works, how the light spectrum works and all these other really interesting things using just the thousand most common words. And he's wow. really good. It's really good at wow. explaining all these things. It's a little funny because it's the word nuclear bomb is like not one of the thousand most common <laughs> words. So, so it's called like the city exploder or something like that. I forget the name of what he uses. Right. <laughs> and so that that's just a, a kind of a, a quick you know, rubric to test our, some of our stuff by. You don't have to, to hem yourself in by. There's plenty of tools online that will do this. You can use a lot of AI tools now even to, to help um, to help test some of that stuff. But it's a good kind of, you know, stop, take a look. Am I, am I, you know, am I getting too complicated here? Instead of having to run through, oh yeah, I'm running this through Grammarly and run this, but all that stuff is great. But just check it real quick. Are you using it? How many words are you using here that are not in that top thousand? If it's too many, then maybe see what you can change. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a fantastic message. And so thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Also, I think you get the uh, William James Reference Award for actually having a reference more than just, you know, the number of books that we read that say, oh, yeah, and William's ja- William James just, you know, the father of psychology was of, of in favor of or supportive of or blah, blah, blah. And it's like one line. But you actually quoted him. And I, I thought that this was really fantastic. Uh, and I have a question, but but I'm just going to read this quote so the, the listeners get the context. William James wrote that millions of items of the outward order are present to my sense which never properly enter into my experience. Why? Because they have no interest to me. My experience is what I agree to attend to. Only those items which I notice shape my mind. Without selective interest, experience is utter chaos. So <laughs> it's a fantastic quote. But if that's, if James is right, how do we get past things that are of no interest to me? Well, I think that there's two pieces to that. And it going back to that toolkit, beneficial and are they salient? So salient is, do, do we notice them? First of all, do they stand out in this crowd? You, mm-hmm. you know, James mentions the millions of items. And that's very true, right? Every every day as we're going through and we're experiencing those 13 hours of media as we're as we're doing our work, as we're talking with our friends and family, it's just a lot of things. We we evolved to to, to perceive them a little bit, but we also evolve to quickly dump them out when they aren't something that uh, were directly relevant to what my experience was. Something I, if it wasn't something I could eat or that was going to eat me, you know, I was pretty quickly <laughs> going to just dispose of it. Yeah. And that being said, well, those are beneficial things. Those are what's of interest to you. It's that I don't want the thing. I want what the thing does for me. I don't. I don't care about the drill. I don't. I want the hole in the wall. But actually, I don't even want the hole in the wall. I want the picture on the wall. Yeah. And I don't even want the picture on the wall. I want the feelings of love and belonging that are associated oh, with having the picture on yeah. the wall. So by going several levels deep on mm-hmm. it, that's how you can really activate on that 
that piece that James was saying. That's interesting because you talked about the Levitt quote earlier, right? It's the quarter inch hole, not the quarter inch drill. But in reality, that's not even it. It, it, it. it is that next layer, the layer behind that, the layer behind that. That's very cool. And and I think that is something that you bring out that I think is really important because when we think about it, we we many of the many of our listeners have probably heard the, the quarter inch hole before, but that's not just it. It isn't just you can't stop there. If you stop there, you're you're doing a disservice, right? You're you're doing this other thing. With that, I want to go off on a tangent because you you talk about the most important or how did you state this? I want to make sure I get this right. The uh, complex communication endeavor in human history, which is the messages that was put on Voyager 1, which is launched in 1977, which is now what 15 some billion miles away. And at some point, some alien civilization might come across it. And we had to put on there in a very limited amount of time information. So what made this, like, talk a little bit about what got put on there. And then also, if you can talk about, from your perspective, what what they did and why that was so so complex. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm I'm a big, like, space nerd. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if that came across because there's like four or so. Star Trek references? No, I yeah, didn't notice that, that, that at all. Somehow, <laughs> uh, that are somehow space related in it. So... In 1977, uh, Voyager 1 was being launched. This was going to be the first craft that was going to basically have an indefinite service period. It's going to loop around a bunch of planets, and it's going to be shot off into interstellar space eventually, which has just reached in the last few years, by the way. Um, it is the fastest thing that we have ever uh, built. It is the furthest thing that humans have ever uh, sent. And on that, Carl Sagan, one of the great communicators, he lobbied to have a message, like a message in a bottle, put onto that craft that was, you know, going to float out in the endless cosmic sea. I think that's how he called it. Uh, the yes. message, it's it's completely self-contained, right? Because it's going off, and hopefully, one day in the distant future, some alien spacecraft, you know, stumbles upon it, picks it up. And it doesn't become the plot to Star Trek the Motion Picture, which was not very good because that was <laughs> that was the end. But the just, just day, to editorialize just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Hopefully one day some some craft picks it up and they you know receive this message from a long lost civilization. And so on that met on that craft is this golden disc, and on there there's a bunch of instructions about where it came from and, you know, and some math symbols and some, some kind of self-contained diagrams and instructions about how to play the, the disc. And the first thing on there, there's also, there's music, there's photos of humans and of, of animals and of, you know, the Taj Mahal and a bunch of other stuff. And on there though, there's a bunch of greetings in a number of different languages. The first one is in Sumerian and it, it translates to may all be well, may all be well. And that is the, across this inconceivable expanse of space and time, uh, the first message to another, another species is this a simple idea is that we care about the receiver, that we care. Uh, it is something that is, that is beneficial, focused, salient, empathetic, and minimal, is that we care about the receiver, may all be well. And uh, I, I think that is, you know, a, a wonderful kind of coda to, uh, to this entire, entire project. Ben, thinking about the book, was there a playlist? Did you, first of all, did you listen to music while you were writing the book? And I did. I did. So 
I so I reference music a little bit in the book, uh, but the you I have found that you and this is not a unique observation. You can't really listen to music that has a lot of lyrics in it and and write at the same yeah. time. Like that part of your brain just isn't going to work. So I, I did put together a playlist that has a very eclectic mix of uh, a nonverbal music on there. And I, I wrote this partially after I saw Top Gun Maverick and I had the Top Gun theme song uh, playing many times kind of in, yeah. in my head. And then the other thing that came became very helpful was I saw Arcade Fire play at uh, Barclay Center in Brooklyn not too long ago. And before they started, it is something very interesting. They played Rhapsody in Blue, like the 18-minute George Gershwin piece. Yeah, they wow. They played that on the speaker system. Whole arena was dark, 18 minutes, there's playing Rhapsody in Blue. And I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen, actually. Before they even played a note of their own music, it was just like the speakers playing, some orchestra playing Rhapsody in Blue. It's a great like, way to get into it. So the lights go down and you're expecting the, the band to come out on stage, but Arcade Fire isn't walking out on stage. All you start to hear is Rhapsody in Blue. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And that, so that became, for me, uh, I, get, I got in my head. It's also like, you know, the best song to put in your headphones as you walk around New York City, by the way. <laughs> but that became, for me, this kind of like 18 minute, like sprint a lot of times where I would go <sighs> and I'd be writing something and it's like, okay, 18 minutes, I cannot put my head up for anything. I can't go check my phone. It's like, until this song is over, I'm not going to go. And you can add an American in Paris if you want to go to like 30 minutes, right? So that was <laughs> okay. the okay. kind of back-to-back first wins that was, that was powering me through some of the chapters. Oh, I love I love that. Just the, the image of, uh, you know, using Rhapsody in Blue as a timer. Um, and just kind of having it as like my focus time. Oh, I'm at that note. I'm getting close. I gotta, I gotta wrap it up. And so there you go. That's oh, fantastic. Cool. Ben, thanks so much for being a guest on Behavioral Groups today. Uh, thanks so much for having me. This has been a ton of fun. You guys are the best. Very kind of you. This was really fun for us too. Thank you. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Ben, have a free-flowing conversation, and groove on whatever else comes into our idiotic, fluent brains. There you our go. Our idiotic and fluent brains. Well, I I, I wanted yeah. to bring back the idiot part from the beginning in the oh, intro. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and good. then I and just- And fluency. I, and, and then fluency, because, you know, it's okay. so cool and- you know, obviously the idiot part of me didn't realize that the idiot and fluent didn't go together. So <laughs> see, it works, right? It worked. Check, check that one off for today. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Where do you want to start uh, our, our grooving? What was salient for you? Ooh, good. Ooh. So 10 hundred words, not a thousand. Mm, yeah. A love, love some that. of that. But I think, I think one of the interesting pieces and we, and we, we mentioned this in the, in the intro. We have had a lot of people on recently talking about communication yeah, and this need to improve our communication across the board. And I think Ben kind of was a really good fit kind of being at the, the end of these kind of conversations because this idea about simplicity, this idea of we crave this simplicity, that it's yeah. a universal aspect that we really want to have those messages be delivered to us in a salient and fluent manner. And that that is really important to us. Yeah. We could even say that simplicity is like a big friction reducer, right? That 
and and so much of behavioral science is focused on reducing friction. Well, when we go for simplicity, we tend to be, you know, reducing friction and increasing fluency, which I think, you know, we have to get into, I think, a little bit. Yeah. And I think I think one of the reasons we might crave simplicity is because we don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think yeah. we don't yeah. get it in in today. We don't get simplistic messages all of the time. And we're over burdened with messages. I mean, this this idea that we are in this saturated environment. Um, and, mm-hmm. and within that saturated environment, simplicity isn't simple, right? I mean, you, you, no, you it's, not. it's not just about having a simple message. You have to break through the clutter. Uh, what was it? Uh, what did he say? American consumes how much? 13, 13 hours of media a day? 13 uh, hours. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. That is just unfreaking believable. But this idea of, all right, how do we break through that? There was something in his book about uh, you need, you know, we're wearing this armor and we need to break through this armor. And I just thought that was a wonderful kind of analogy is, you know, you have 13 hours of media a day. All right. You have to break through. And and we think to do that, we have to be complex or funny or, you know, whatever. But I think we're craving that simplicity, that salience that we need. So as much as been focused on the receiver, I also really appreciated that he focused on the environment of the sender. Mm. The, you know, as a, as a guy in a corporate world, I, you know, got, well, we got to get that analysis done right away. Uh, you know, the, the boss wants that report. There's all kinds of things that are creating a sort of hostile environment for creating simple communication. Cause it, as you said, simple communication or simplicity is not simple. That means it's going to take time and effort to come up with, with a simple message. What's the quote that's always attributed to Mark Twain. I don't know if it was him or not, but you know, I would have written you a short letter, but I didn't have the time. Yeah. You know? right, right. And yeah. I think there's, there's something to that. There is this idea that we have to work at simplicity. Yeah. And that piece is one that we feel overburdened the environment as you said we the boss wants this tomorrow uh, all of these things and yet we need to slow down and really make sure that we are putting the time energy and effort into creating clear salient beneficial fluent messages. And we should probably do that with this podcast too, but we just rushed through it. So I see what you're doing there. You're bringing up Ben's uh, five points there, five ideas. Well, some of them. Yeah. Some yeah. of them. Yeah. I, I want to make sure that we do talk a, a little bit about fluency because you like that word. I really like how Ben he said, I think he defined it as something that's easy to take from the world, to stick in your head and make sense of it. So this kind of plays to a little bit of confirmation bias, right? Because it's going to have to sort of make sense to us. But if it doesn't make sense to us, boy, we just increase the friction factor by a hundredfold, right? Yeah. If it, it's got to make sense to us. It has to stick in our head. So this is why songs are so good because they are something that we can take from the world. It sticks in our head and it makes sense to us. 
But this is the interesting piece too, when we get into corporate world, right? I was just talking with a client. They sent me their incentive compensation plan. I have read thousands and thousands of incentive compensation plans. And, in my and, and was the one that you, you got from the client fluence? Did it have a high degree of fluency? I did not understand the freaking. Oh, like, uh, it was. No. I, it was one of these where I'm like going. Wow. They're using acronyms that I had never heard of. They have a eight part process put in to determine a salesperson's incentive plan that uh, is just this whole mismatch of different things, and yet. So this was the written piece. And yet when I got on the phone with the executive leader over this, this group, he was very articulate and fluent in explaining oh. how this worked. And he laid that out. And I said, and so now it's our so, job to take, you know, this mis crazy, unreadable kind of thing that's full of jargon monoxide jargon <laughs> monoxide and making it into a fluent salient beneficial maybe not minimalist but you know this yeah. this component that people can actually get and to your point this idea of fluency right so that i read this or i go through this powerpoint and i understand right it makes sense in this world um it has meaning and it sticks with me so that yeah, I am yeah. actually motivated yeah. to go out and drive the sales that I need to drive. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought that up. Can I also just do a little reframe on one thing that kind of sticks with me? Ben said, hey, we're all marketers. And I'd just like to reframe that just a little bit to say we all do marketing, but maybe we're not all marketers. And it kind of reminds me of like the way, like we all do accounting, right? If we, we just keep the books on our, on our home budgets, right? We're, we're doing accounting, but well, we're not well, accountants. Some of you do. I, I, oh. I don't even do that. <laughs> yes, but you do. Oh my God. I know that's you're the a, idiot part of me. You're so, a financial you maven. Uh, you, you care for that stuff very carefully, but I think that it, it's not a bad thing to be thinking of ourselves as doing marketing or doing accounting or being a messenger that, you know, we don't have to be copywriters, but we can certainly be people that figure out how to write copy from time to time. So Tim, the, when we, okay, going back to Jonah Berger and his magic words, right? Mm -hmm. When we talked about that and, and having becoming, being a voter as opposed to a person who is voting. Yep. So that's it. So is this should, but, but should we be, should we think of ourselves as marketers? Should we reframe ourselves in that manner so that we actually take this with more responsibility, that we, be, that we do the behaviors that a marketer would do as opposed to doing marketing? That's a good question. I, I don't know. The, the short story is I don't know, Kurt. I'm not sure if that would necessarily be better or not. Do, do you have an opinion? I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I do think, though, to your point, I don't think we are all marketers. I think we do all do marketing. Yeah. Though, yeah. Right. It, it is the accounting piece, as you, as you said. I, I'm wondering, though, again, as we think about the language that we use and how language is important and fluency and those 
ten hundred words and all of those factors that come into uh, into into play is you know how do we identify ourselves when it comes to communication and that identification matters because I think it's going to make an impact on how we do this and so for myself I might try to think of myself as a I might label myself as a marketer or a communicator. Maybe I'll just label myself as a communicator. So cool. All right. Okay. All right. Any, anything else, Mr. Houlihan, as we get to the end here? No, I think that'll do it. Right. I think that's a wrap. So that's it. That that's all you're going to say. It's that's a wrap. It's simple. It's focused. It's salient. (laughs) Okay. That's a wrap. Okay, I think you might be interpreting Ben's uh, comments just a little bit too literally. <laughs> oh, you might be right. Maybe that's true. Oh, man. All right. We want to thank Ben for being a wonderful guest on today's episode. And, and we want to thank you, our listeners, for supporting us and listening to us. We really, really appreciate being able to share these ideas with this community. Yeah, we appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to listen to a couple idiots as we talk to really <laughs> smart people. And hopefully these idiots can piece out something from these very smart people that you can find useful in each of these episodes. And, you know, this year we're going to try some new ideas and we'd love your feedback. So please give the show a rating, give us a shout out on social media, send us some ideas on what you would like to see. We just love hearing from you. And so we appreciate it. Yeah. And so with that, we hope that you find a simple and fluent way this week to go out and find your groove. 